My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors. It's my privilege to be preaching out of Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, I'm going to dismiss these kids before, uh, before they take over. We've got the blue station and the gray station that are exiting today. So we've got uh, the blue station exiting over here. And that's ages 3 to 5. This morning the, the blue station is going to be learning about the present. Now not the present as a sense of time state of time, but the, the present as in God's uh, gift uh, to one of his chosen. And so uh, I think you'll enjoy asking a child their version of today's uh, Bible story there in uh, the blue station. But also, what about the gray station? They're still working through the catechism. What, what sort of question are they learning the answer to today? Well, it's this. What is the Lord's Supper? What is the Lord's Supper? We'll partake of that soon uh, here in a couple weeks here at Hagerstown Church. Um, the kids will be prepared to tell you what it is. What is it? It's Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him. That's what the Lord's Supper is this morning. But we're not going to talk too long about the Lord's Supper. This morning we're going to talk about a buyer's guide. You guys remember the buyer's guides? Looking for a vehicle. You don't have a lot of money, but you've got some. You've scratched together and you're wanting to make sure that you make the best purchase possible with your limited resources. And so you get the guide. It's got to be something that you can afford. You look through the pages there and you see all of these different brands, all of these different options compared, the pros and the cons. Now, you need a vehicle that has multiple uses. You want this one vehicle to meet all of your needs. Maybe when you go get the groceries or when you take the family on vacation. Maybe uh, sort of a vehicle that you could get a couple extra friends in and go watch the game down in Baltimore. You want all of the uses to be met in this one vehicle. But you don't just want it to, to fit the sort of needs that you have. You also want it to be comfortable. As you're making that trek down to Baltimore, as you're heading down on vacation, as you're getting your groceries in the back, you also want it to be a vehicle that's comfortable. You want it to have the right options. Maybe super-powered AC system or those really, really high-end leather seats with that really fancy stitching. If you can afford it, that is. You want one that fits the bill, right? Multiple uses, very comfortable, but you also want something that lasts. Perhaps that's what we want most. We want the kind of vehicle that we don't have to shell out that sort of coin on a regular basis. Maybe this is going to be the last purchase you ever make. We like to hear things like lifetime warranty. Hey, that sounds pretty good. This will be the last one I buy. Maybe a last one I, the last one I buy for a long time at least. But we look at our choices we want our purchase to bring satisfaction. We want it to meet our needs, and we want it to last a lifetime. There in your guide, you have all the pros and the cons listed. You're able to weigh out all the options. On one hand, you've got this option, and on the other hand, you have another. Well, that's actually what our passage is about this morning. Now, it's not a buyer's guide, but it is a guide that helps us to understand the pros and cons of something that is vitally important and of eternal importance. Our main idea last week is the same main idea this week. It's the same thought, just built upon with a little more detail. 
the main idea for this morning is this. Your greatest fear and your deepest longing are both resolved in the eternality of Jesus Christ. Just think about that statement. Your greatest fear and your deepest longings are both resolved in the eternality of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. I want to show you what I mean by that. We'll read that passage together here, and then we'll work to unpack it. So Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to the end of the chapter. Here's what the scriptures say. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, speaking of Jesus, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, who pray in his name, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted in above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we do stop now. We do it briefly, but we are faithful to stop and ask you to do a work that we cannot do on our own. Father, whether, whether these concepts are easy to us or very difficult, we cannot truly understand them. 
cannot truly have them change our hearts aside from the working of your spirit. So we just want to acknowledge that now. In humility, we lay ourselves before the text and we ask that you do what we cannot. Father, that you'd take stumbling blocks and barriers out of the way. Would you allow us to see what you have for us today? And we ask it boldly again, Jesus, in your name. Amen. The key verses for this morning, the key to understanding what's happening in this passage that we've just read is in verses 18 and 19. So take your copy and look at that. You might even draw a little key out beside 18 and 19 there in the margin. Because it really will help you to understand. If you get this, you'll understand what's happening in this passage. Here's what the scriptures say. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. Why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. It's useless. The law never made anything perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. This one is taken away. This one is added in. Why? Because through it, we draw near to God. I love that statement. On one hand, and then the other. We have on one hand, a weak law. We have a weak priesthood. And on the other hand, we have a better priesthood. You could say one is weak and one is superior. By way of illustration, I want to throw a slide up on the, on the screen for you this morning where it contrasts Levi, Jesus, and Melchizedek. So look at all three of those together. Jesus there in the middle. One priest, one sacrifice, bringing full atonement. How do you like that for a buyer's guide? To the left we see Levi, many priests, many sacrifices. More is better, right? Not in this case. Many priests, many sacrifices equal no atonement. Well, what about Melchizedek? He's one priest like Jesus, but there's no sacrifice with Melchizedek. There's no priesthood. There's no intervening for us on our behalf. And because of that, there is no atonement. But with Jesus alone, we have one priest, one sacrifice, and full atonement. For now, this morning, I want to just zoom in on thinking of this idea that Levi and Jesus, let's compare the two. The priesthood of Levi and the priesthood of Jesus. First, we see that Levi had many priests, and Jesus only has one priest. Jesus himself is one priest. Look at verse 23. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. There's many flaws that the Levites have, and one of them is a fatal flaw, pun intended. None of them can continue in their office. Each of them will die. None of them can continually, for all of eternity, act in service to God as a mediator on behalf of God's people. And that's what a priest does. He mediates. But speaking of Jesus, in contrast to the many priests who died, who bore children, who served on God's behalf, made the sacrifices, entered into the holy place, exited the holy place, 
repeating that many times, dying, their child, their son taking their place, him doing the exact same thing on for all of time up until the destruction of the temple. But Jesus, in contrast, he holds his priesthood permanently. How does he do that? Because he continues forever. He continues forever. Why does Jesus not yield his priesthood to another? Why doesn't he step aside and give it to some other person? Why? Because he's indestructible. Think of this. When death came for Jesus, death died and Jesus lived. Think of that. When death comes for you, you'll die. You'll give in. Just as with all the other priests that went into the temple, they eventually gave way to death. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. But when death came for Jesus, death itself died. Look back at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 7. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Remember, Melchizedek had this lore. He was a man who became a myth. We didn't know anything about him, and all of these stories were written about him outside of the scriptures, and we began to understand him as somebody larger than life itself. And in that way, he reminded us of Jesus. Jesus, like Melchizedek, but not just a shadow, the actual substance, became a priest. Not on the basis, verse 16 says, of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. There's a choice that's being made by the Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is with this great burden in a pastoral way is speaking to his congregation and he's saying, you're tempted to go to another pastor or priest. You're tempted to go to another way. You've left Levi. You've left the Levitical law and you've come to Christ who is the great high priest who lived an indestructible life. And now as the times have gotten tough, you're tempted to return. You're tempted to go back. And the author is saying, do you really want to go back to this priesthood that doesn't accomplish anything? To this priesthood who can't even stay alive? No. Why don't you go to the priest who demonstrates his power, who demonstrates his right as a high priest through an indestructible life? What's interesting is that Levi's descendants... The priests, Aaron's descendants, they didn't have resurrection power. And so those who submit to Aaron or Levi's shadowing office, they have no hope of personal resurrection. But those who submit to the forever priest, those who submit to Jesus, those who look for his sacrifice to atone them, they have themselves the promise of an eternal, indestructible life. It's one of the reasons why Christians, when we bury our dead, we don't say so long, we say see you soon. Why? Because we know in this life we will have trouble. We know that this life will bring death, but we know that we will face death and we will face the resurrection. Resurrection to eternal life. We sang a moment ago the, the power that courses through the blood of our risen Lord courses through our veins also. Because he lives, so will we. Levi 
he's dead. His descendant priests have died as well. Melchizedek, he's dead. But Jesus, though he died, he lives again. And church, we will also. How's that for a contrast? How's that for a buyer's guide? But there's more than that. That's just one level that we've compared these two options. And there's several more. Let's keep going. The second line that we see in this contrast is that Levi made many sacrifices. But Jesus only offered one sacrifice. Levi makes many sacrifices. Jesus offers only one. Again, we, think, we may be tempted to think many is good. More is better. And yet in this case, once again, more is not better. We read it a moment ago. Look at verse 27. There in chapter 7 of Hebrews. He has no need, like the high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't continually offer sacrifices. Furthermore, it's really interesting as you compare. Jesus doesn't offer a sacrifice for his own sins as the priests would. First, in order for themselves to be considered clean, they would have to go through their own ritual cleansing so that they could then stand as a priest between God and God's people. Jesus has no need. He has no sin. Therefore, he does not make an offering for himself. He makes one offering, not a continual offering for the people, one offering for the people. The scriptures say that he sits down. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus makes his sacrifice, he declares, it is finished. There's no more sacrifices that need to be made. God is satisfied with this sacrifice. What weakness Levitical law had in comparison to what Jesus accomplished. These daily offerings, these yearly offerings, perpetually for seemingly all time, Jesus makes one. Jesus only makes one. We've been in chapter 7 this morning of the book of Hebrews, but I want you to just jump forward. We'll skip ahead a little bit to chapter 10. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. If I don't hear the pages turning, I'll just assume you're not, uh, you're not going with me. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, it's on the screen too. What does it say there? Speaking to this very point, verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow, the Levitical law has only a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, because it's only a shadow and not the substance, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. The Levitical sacrifice, it didn't accomplish what it pictured. In, in other words, the Levitical law was only a shadow of things to come. It was a prophecy of sorts. It was constantly teaching God's people, us today, of our need 
and of our coming help in Jesus. Think of the law, think of the sacrifices, the rituals, and the celebrations as a continual announcement of a future coming event. Another way you can think about it, you can think of the sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood, as a promise from God, regularly reminding you of his promise to save you. Think of Jesus then as the fulfillment of that promise, the fulfillment of that guarantee, God making good on his past promise. Levi's boys, they sacrificed countless animals. And they did as they were instructed, but it never availed to anything. It never accomplished atonement. But Jesus made one sacrifice. One sacrifice. What does the continual sacrifice picture? What does Jesus' one sacrifice accomplish? Well, we've used this word atonement. Let's talk about that. That's the third way that we're going to see the comparison. And really, it's the bottom line. It's the final statement. It's the end of the buyer's guide, so to speak. What do we get in this option and what do we get in the other? Well, with all the myriad sacrifices and all the myriad priests, you think you might get more bang for the buck with Levi. And yet at the end of time, at the end of this, there is no atonement. But in Jesus with his one priest, one sacrifice, we have full atonement. Look back at chapter 7. Back at chapter 7 and look at verse 19. I want you to underline two lines, two phrases. The first is, made nothing perfect. And the second is, We draw near to God. Made nothing perfect, and we draw near to God. You see, man used to abide with God. Man was made to live, to dwell, to be in communication and community with God. I love how the scriptures tell us in the book of Genesis that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. What, what, an, what a beautiful statement. Adam worked. It wasn't tough. He enjoyed it. He was made for that. And at the end of the day, what does he do? In the cool of the day, he walks with God. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want that? Even if you're not a Christian, isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? To be able to walk with your creator. To not hide from him. To draw near to him. Oh, it's the longing of every heart, Christian or not, that you could walk with your, with your God. And not hide from him, not be ashamed, not be afraid of him. But to be perfect in your relationship with him. And to draw near. But what happened? Well, man sinned. Adam sinned. And what's the first thing we see happening? He doesn't want to walk with God in the cool of the day, but in the cool of the day, he wants to hide. He's running. When you think of atonement, I want you to think of this. Atonement is the ability to draw near to God. Atonement is the ability to draw near to God. Throw this 
definition up on the screen for you today. Atonement is the way in which God reconciles himself to his people. It's the way in which God reconciles himself to his people. Atonement is necessary because we sinned against God. We were cut off from him. And now God has made us at one with him. That's what atonement means. There's very few theological terms that you know that have an English etymology, that are, that are uh, formed from English words. But atonement is. You're at one with God. It's God making you again one with himself in, in relation. Levi, is he able to accomplish any atonement? Zero. But it did shadow. It did picture. It did point to the substance of Jesus' full atonement with his one sacrifice offered by he himself, the great high priest. I believe we talked about this last week. The tabernacle served as a picture of the garden. Levitical priest would go into this garden of sorts and he would make a sacrifice, but then he would exit. He wouldn't stay there, he would exit. And then he would die at some point and another priest would take his place, would come in there, make a sacrifice in the presence of God in the garden, and then he would leave. And what this was doing, it was a shadow. It was an aroma of a future meal that we would be able to enjoy, that Jesus would go back into the garden, back into the presence of God and not make a sacrifice and then leave, but make a sacrifice and tear the walls down so that God's people could come back in. And brothers and sisters, that is atonement. That's what we see in verse 19. The law makes nothing perfect. The law does not bring reconciliation between you and God, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Better to say the least. Through which we draw near to God. We become reconciled to God through Jesus' work, through Jesus' sacrifice. God promised that he would send a redeemer in Genesis 3. He promised that he would. He made an oath. I'll send a deliverer. And this redeemer would be perfect. Be perfect in his ability to reconcile man back to God. But God made another promise. He made another oath, not just in Genesis 3, throughout scriptures. But I want to draw your attention because the preacher in Hebrews 7 draws your attention to this. Psalm 110, verse 4. God makes another promise. In addition to this perfect redeemer that would perfectly re redeem us and bring atonement, bring us back into God's presence. He says, the Lord, capitalized L-O-R-D, that's the name for God. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You, Jesus, you Messiah, you Redeemer are a priest. You are one that brings atonement and you will do it how long? Forever. After the order of Melchizedek. This Redeemer, he would atone forever. It wouldn't be a sacrifice that he'd have to make today, and it would be effective. It would be great, but it wouldn't last forever. His sort of sacrifice, his purchasing of atonement is forever. 
and he'll never fail in his priestly duties. If you needed help from a Levitical priest to make a sacrifice in the temple for you today, you're out of luck. But if you're looking today to the eternal son of God, the perfect priest who rules and atones for all of eternity, then you found one in Jesus Christ. Do you you see what's happening here? We could throw that chart back up on the screen, the, the contrast. We've got Levi on one side. We've got Melchizedek on the other. And right in the middle we've got Jesus. And I want you to notice something. That this passage is telling us the one we've looked at this morning, is telling us that Jesus is the substance of what Levitical priesthood foretold. He's the fulfillment. Levi smells like atonement, but Jesus is atonement. Look on the other side. Melchizedek, he smells like eternity. He makes us think of eternity. We imagine and and dream and long for eternity. We would never lose, but he's not the substance. Jesus is the substance. So both of these priesthood, weak in substance, but powerful in conjuring in our minds the, the thoughts and the beauty and the eternality and the perfection of Jesus. And so what have we done up until this point? Well, we've read these key verses, verses 18 and 19, and what they've said is, hey, just look, compare the two. There's no comparison. There's absolutely no comparison. And so what is the the main verse in this text, the ones that we've read this morning? Well, look at verse 28. I would say that's the main verse. Key verse, 18 and 19, main verse, verse 28. What does it say? For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the Uh, The word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Perfect forever. Last week, we looked at this idea that Jesus is the great high priest who reigns forever. Today, if you're going to take one thing away, take this away. He's perfect. But let's take both. He's perfect forever. The deepest longings, our greatest fears resolved, answered in Jesus, the great high priest, who is perfect forever. The author of the book of Hebrews is writing to first century Christian Jews. and You know this is happening. They're tempted to fall away. Things have become incredibly difficult for them. They're losing their political standing. They're losing their financial footing. Why? Because they're following Jesus. Everything was great. It was incredible. Sort of an emotional, spiritual high that they were on. And now payday came and things got tough. And they began to ask these sorts of questions. Is he really worth it? Is it really, really worth it? You know, brother, I've been looking, I've been thinking, I'm just wondering, like, is Jesus better is he really better? Do you, remember, do you remember when we had the Levitical priest making the sacrifices for us? Like, it kept going. Like, they just kept making the sacrifices, right? Shouldn't we maybe consider going back almost like our forefathers did when they left Egypt? And they were tempted to go back. You know, they had onions and they had fish. and they, <laughs> That sounds delicious. 
hey, we should go back, right? We've got nothing in the wilderness. Let's go back to Egypt. They're tempted. Well, it's part of the fallen human condition. We can beat them up. Why would you think that something's better than Jesus? Why would you think the Levitical priesthood is better than Jesus and that you should revert back from following Jesus to this other shadow? Well, because their hearts are prone to wander from the great high priest. And before you get too excited about that, that's not just true of them. It's true of you too. Maybe even in an imperceptible way, your heart, Christian, is prone to wander. Your confidence is prone to wane away from the great high priest who is Christ to some lesser sacrificial system. They were tempted to turn away from Jesus. And we're tempted to turn away from him as well, maybe for different reasons. And so if I could take this text sort of springboard off of it and not speak to the first century Hebrews that were tempted to leave Jesus, but just speak to this congregation of which I'm a part. If I were to speak to you, I want to give you three absolute truths concerning Jesus' priesthood. Three absolute truths. Because you're tempted today to leave Jesus. I'm not tempted. Brother, sister, be on guard. You are also tempted to abandon Jesus as well. And I want us to look at this buyer's guide. I want us to, and I want to highlight, I want to circle and show you, you don't have to purchase it. It's for you free, but don't abandon it. Here's three reasons why. Three absolute truths concerning Jesus' priesthood. Number one, nothing can be added to Jesus. Nothing can be added to Jesus. Another way you could say it is nothing needs to be added to Jesus. You don't need this vehicle and then another vehicle and then a motorcycle to go on top of it. Jesus does it all. Jesus' priesthood needs nothing else. There's no bell or whistle that you need to add to Jesus' work on your behalf. Quickly, I want to just read from Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. I think it's on the screen for you today. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the Galatian church. They've been tempted. They began to follow Jesus and to put all of their faith in Jesus. To say, you know what, when I stand before God, I'm going to say Jesus is the reason why I can come to you now. But then the Judaizers came along and they said, hey, that's great. You can keep praying that, pray in Jesus' name and all that stuff. But just remember, unless you're circumcised, you're not going to be able to approach God. You're not going to be made right. I just want you to know that. You need to add something to it. You need to add something to Jesus' work. You say, well, that's foolishness. Well, you're tempted to do the same thing. You're tempted every single day to add to what Jesus has already done. And I love how Paul says this in Galatians 3, verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Before we, to, just to save time before we get, jump into this, let me just give you a modern-day example. If I were to write you a check for $1,000, and I said, that's going to be able to pay, how much is your house payment? You said, it's $1,000. And then I wrote you a check, signed my name at the, my name's at the top, my bank account information's there, and I sign my name at the bottom with $1,000 right there. And then you go to the bank, and on your way to the bank, you say, you know what? I'm just worried this isn't going to be enough. And so you reach into your pocket, and you grab a, only thing you could find, a green crayon. And you grab that green crayon, and then you write another circle right behind it. And you know I'm good for it, right? I mean, I'm a pastor. 
So you write another circle behind that, another zero, and then you go into the bank and you say, here it is. Here's this contract that Pastor Josh gave to me. Well, what are they going to say to you? Hey, you, you can't add anything. You, you know you can't add anything to Pastor Josh's check, right? You've, you've just destroyed this thing. It was worth a it was worth a thousand dollars. The bank we've got the money in the account and it's right here in the safe. And yeah, that's his name. But when you added that extra, why did you do that? It was enough. It was everything that you needed. But now it's not worth anything. It's sort of the same thing with Jesus. That's a weak illustration of something that's far greater and grander. When we try to add anything to Jesus, it actually takes away. We looked at that last week. Nothing can be added to Jesus. Some of you in your anxiety, some of you in your fears, you think that you need to somehow make God love you more today. And you think, I'll just need, if I could just get one more sacrifice. If, 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 if I could just get the Levites to do one more sacrifice for me, I think then I would be made righteous before God. Or maybe you're not so silly to think that, but maybe you think, if I could just do one more thing today, God would love me. Maybe you're the sort of person that lays in bed at night and wonders, could I have done more? Well, absolutely you could have done more. Well, then God, God doesn't love me or he's not accepted me. If I could, I'm just going to have to get back out of bed and do one more thing. Brother and sister, if that's you this morning, then you're adding to Jesus and you're actually negating all of the power of the gospel. You can't go through two doors at the same time. You either trust fully in the work of Christ, his one sacrifice, or you go to some other Levite or some other priest and you get many sacrifices and you get many priests. But I promise you this, none of them will be as effective. None of them will accomplish what Jesus accomplishes. The Lord swore, he made an oath, Jesus is a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So don't be tempted to go another route. You say, I just feel like I need to do something to earn it. Just sit still, be still, and know that he is God. Be still and know that he has accomplished everything that he promised he would accomplish on your behalf. Nothing can be added to Jesus, Hagerstown Church. Don't turn away from that. That's one point that I want you to know from the text this morning. Don't add anything to Jesus. He doesn't need anything else. But there's another thing. Nothing lasts as long as Jesus. That's so important. I remember one time walking down the streets of Hagerstown and uh, Steve Swain looked at me and he said, Josh, I've got socks older than you. Well, I didn't know what he meant by that. And I thought about it and I'm like, I think he was making fun of me. I think he was calling me a whippersnapper. And then I also thought, man, where did you buy those socks? That's a good pair of socks. Did you use a buyer's guide to find the right pair of the right socks to buy, right? We want things that last a long time. When we find a, some sort of a product that works well for us, it fits our needs and it lasts a good while, we tell our friends about it. Well, I can tell you this, nothing lasts as long as Jesus. There's things in this world that, be, that may in this moment taste better than Jesus. They may bring you more comfort than what you feel from Jesus in this exact moment. Speaking to that is the writer of Hebrews again in chapter 11. He's quoting Moses. Here's Moses in Egypt and it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, that would be a lot of fun. Imagine the suffering 
that Moses went through in his life. If he would have gone another path, the path of disobedience, he could have stayed in Egypt. It had been a lot more fun. Everything he ever wanted, pleasures beyond imagine, they were at his fingertips. But he knew that wouldn't last forever. And so what does he say? Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people to, of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's right. Any sort of sin that has an allure in your heart, that is tempting you and drawing you, it may be pleasurable. It may feel good. It may taste good. It may be enjoyable in this moment, but the scriptures are clear. Those pleasures of sin are fleeting. What a vivid picture. They're literally running from you. You pick it up and it slips through your hands. It's gone before you know it. The satisfaction of the best meal that you've ever eaten, it fades and you're left longing for another. And yet Jesus offers us the sort of meal or the sort of water that actually satisfies us. One drink, never thirsty again. That's what he said. If you seek pleasure in this life only, your pleasure, your joy will end. It will cease. A moment ago, we, we read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, our brother William read this. He spoke of those who had forsaken the, the cause of Christ. They'd forsaken the cross of Christ. And what was their God? Their God was their belly. They wanted the fleeting things. You say, I'm not tempted serve another, or to, to submit to another priest, well, maybe you actually are. Take a second look. Are you submitting yourself to the priesthood of Jesus Christ who says that nothing lasts as long as me? I'm a priest forever. One sacrifice, that's it. Do you believe that? Strictly on a value scale, nothing promises and then delivers like Jesus. Nothing. Nothing lasts. Everything else fades. If you chase pleasure through pornography, relationships, trinkets, and the likes, you will leave this life empty. Writing a book about this very thing, St. Augustine said this, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are unsatisfied in all of these other things. And that's Augustine's testimony. Never satisfied. Having everything that he could have wanted in this life, sinful or not, and nothing satisfied him. And he says, <laughs> my heart was restless until it found its rest in you. That's what the Bible makes clear. It's what Augustine made clear. And you know it. I don't care who you are this morning. I know that you know the answer is this. That there is nothing in this life apart from God himself that will actually satisfy you. Nothing. Your conscience betrays you. Your collections betray you. Your face betrays you. You're not satisfied. You'll never be satisfied apart from God. He has made you for himself. And you will be restless until you rest in him. Nothing 
Absolutely nothing, church, satisfies like Jesus. If it's satisfaction that you seek, here's an absolute statement. Nothing lasts as long as Jesus. And here's the third and final absolute statement for the morning. Nothing is as secure as Jesus. Nothing is as secure as Jesus. The scriptures record Jesus preaching in Matthew chapter 6. This is a part of a larger sermon, a larger group of, of teachings that Jesus has left for us in the Gospels. I want to look particularly at verses 19, 20, and 21 of chapter 6 in Matthew. Where Jesus says this. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. So Jesus, you don't want us to find treasure? No, that's not what I'm saying. But the treasures here on earth, I want you to be a treasure hunter. I want you to collect treasure. I want you to seek after pleasure. But he says, know this. Treasures on earth are where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. And he says, don't do that. Don't lay up for, don't seek for pleasures here. Don't stack those treasures here on earth because they can be destroyed. They can be stolen. He says, lay it instead. Be a treasure hunter. Collect it. But be a smart one. Lay up treasures in heaven. Because moth can't get to heaven. Moths can't. Uh, destroy your, your trinkets and your fine clothing. And rust can't ruin your, your, your special treasures. And thieves can't actually steal it. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want you to think about the amount of time, the energy that man has dedicated, that you have dedicated to collecting things and then finding ways to keep it secure. Think about that. It's, it's, an endless, it's an endless task to collect and to protect from rust on our cars to holes in our knees to thieves on the street and thieves even in your internet modem, right? We look for the best investment with the safest return and the reality is that apart from Christ, you'll spend your entire life burying and protecting your dog bones only to in the end have yourself finally stolen away from those things by death itself. The only treasure that is secure is treasure laid up in heaven with Jesus. That's it. One of my heroes of the faith, not that long ago, 1950s, he wrote in his journal not long before he died, he said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You're not a fool if you give up what you cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. As we consider which priesthood we'll go with this morning, the Levitical priesthood, the mythological Melchizedekian priesthood, or Jesus' priesthood, or, or maybe our own version of all of this, of chasing pleasure as the great pleasure seeker. Whatever it is, you'll find yourself losing it all if you do not choose Christ. Maybe you're here this morning. I don't know if you're a, a believer, a Christian, or an unbeliever. I don't know where you're at. But either way, I, I think I've brought you up to the edge and you're like, okay, I see what the, the writer is saying. I understand what he's saying. And maybe you still are asking a question. Maybe you've been there with Jesus or maybe this is your first time and you're right at the door. And maybe you're a little bit like John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 where John is in prison now. 
This is the same John who said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he baptizes Jesus after saying, I'm not even worthy enough to do this. I shouldn't even be touching your shoe. And you're going to let me baptize you, eternal Son of God? That's the same John who is now in prison. And John's in prison. He sends his disciples to Jesus. And this is the question. It's, 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 It's shocking. It's shocking. But John sends his disciples to ask Jesus this. Are you the one that is to come, or should we look for another? Are you the guy? Because I, back in the day, I baptized you, and I told everybody that you were the Lamb of God that atoned, that brought us back into the presence of God. And now I'm just not so sure. Should I look for another? If you're asking Jesus, are you the one? Maybe you started your Christian journey, but now the storms of anxiety have hit you. It's too much for you. It challenges your rest in Jesus. It doesn't allow you to find comfort in his promises any longer. And you're looking at him and you're saying, Jesus, are you the one? I'm anxious right now. Are you the one or should I go look for another? Maybe it's lust and pleasure. And you, you heard that, that, that Jesus brings those who trust in him, he brings them to paradise. Like he said to the thief on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And when you hear that word paradise, you think joy and comfort forevermore. And now you've been following Jesus and the trials of life, they're lasting a little longer than you thought they should. Maybe you're considering turning back like Demas. Who the scriptures say he loved this present world more than he loved Christ. He loved pleasure that was fleeting like sand through his fingers. He loved that more than Christ and what Christ has promised. Maybe you're like Demas and you're tempted and you're looking to Jesus and you're saying, are you the one who satisfies my soul? Are you the one that satisfies my longings and brings me the greatest amount of pleasure and joy? Or should I look for another? You wonder what you're to give your life to. Maybe you're wondering this morning, who will I serve? I'm still looking, I'm still still shopping around. Who will be my master? Maybe I'll be my master. You've been challenged to think that the God of this world, Satan himself maybe, is a better master than Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Jesus, are you the best? Are you the one that will atone? Are you the one that will satisfy everything? And will you do it for all of eternity? I'm just not sure anymore. What does Jesus respond? There in that same chapter, verse 4, he says... Jesus answered them, I love this, you go and tell John, you go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does Jesus say to them? Tell John, I'm not mad at him. Tell John, I get it. But I want you to tell John what you see, and I want you to tell John what you hear. The blind are receiving this sight. The the lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And the ones who listen that aren't offended, they're blessed. Do you have the assurance that Jesus offers this morning? Are you resting in him alone for salvation? Friends, this ancient book, it is forever true, and it is inviting you and it's inviting me this morning into rest in Jesus who satisfies our deepest longing, who who resolves our greatest fears. 
There are many of us, including myself, who would love to personally show you from God's word how you can have your deepest longings answered in Jesus and what the scriptures has to say about that. I'd love to, I'd absolutely love to share that with you. And there's a dozen other guys and gals here that would love to do the same thing. So I just want to take a moment and pause. If, if you're hearing all this stuff about Jesus, you're like, what, what does this even mean? It means this. That Jesus is an eternal perfect priest who will satisfy your every longing for all of eternity all of eternity your deepest longings to enter back into fellowship with God and to not be afraid any longer that's available for you if you're on the band I just want to invite you to come back to the stage now as we close this time down transition into a time of praise as they come up, I want you to think about the buyer's guide. We need to think about that buyer's guide. I want you to think about the list of pros and the cons. You've weighed them out this morning. And my question to you is, which priest will you choose? Which one? Which priest are you choosing? Are you choosing the variety of priests that always need replacing? Is that what you have been are you choosing the sort of priesthood that needs to make a continual sacrifice? Or are you choosing the one who is promised by God to be your perfect priest for all of eternity? Not just yesterday, not just tomorrow, but for all of eternity. Friends, brothers and sisters, Jesus is all you need. He checks every block. He satisfies your every longing. And his work lasts for all eternity. Would you choose Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. That knowing our needs, knowing our greatest desires, our deepest fears, and not pushing us away, you pressed in. You provided for us the promise to your oath. The fulfillment, the substance of the shadows of Levi and Melchizedek, you've given us that in Christ. Father, where we're weak, would you help us to believe that? Father, where this is a new concept, that there is something in this life that satisfies well, that's a new concept to somebody here this morning. Father, would you allow them to accept the work of Jesus, to turn from their sins, and to ask for Jesus to be the Lord of their life and their priest before you. Father, would we be, this, would we be the sort of church that continues to lift up Jesus, continues to celebrate the eternal priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is our hope. This is our prayer. And we ask it in his name. Amen.